This is the Education Gadfly Show. I don't think was expecting a conversation yeah. about busing for Joe Biden. Who call us an establishment. Come on. Guard. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrillo of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Mark Porter McGee. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm very excited to be back on the podcast. It is great to have you back. Mark is the CEO and founder of 50Can. Sure. You you had to journey far to get here. I think that uh, we can actually get to one another's offices through an alleyway. That's true. So uh, you are on 16th Street. We yes. are on K Street. Yes. Uh, that's no reflection of our federal lobbying prowess, mm-hmm. which does not exist. Yes, right. It was just a convenient location to gather a bunch of smart people together. Here we are. So straight from the swamp, two two blocks from the <laughs> White House. Uh, and and yes, we sometimes run into each other at, at the local Chopped. It's true. It's very exciting. And, uh, and Mark, thanks for coming on the show. There is a lot to catch up on because there was a big presidential debate last month. Sure. Actually, two of them, depending on how you count, education was a bit of an issue. Let's talk about it in Ed Reform Update. All right, Mark. So the first night, you know, a few glancing references to uh, education, not much. But then the second night, the moment that everyone is talking about Kamala Harris taking on Joe Biden over busing. School busing. And and despite the fact that Donald Trump seems to think that that was just referring to how to transport children to school, we know that it was actually referring to what was going on back in the 70s and 80s, Absolutely. trying to desegregate our schools. What do you think about that? Well, I guess the big question is who is more surprised by that? The ed reform establishment, which I don't think was expecting a conversation yeah. about busing or but Joe don't, Biden. Don't who call us an establishment. Come on. <laughs> All right. Or Joe Biden. Yes. Yeah. Oh, come on. He had to know that was coming. Really? Well, what? He wasn't prepared. He was sure. not prepared. It was crazy. Yeah. Well, he had to know that she was going to come after him about, you know, his comment about working with senators who were segregationists. Uh, and then, you know, there had been stories about the things he worked with them on was about busing. Uh, and boy, did she tee that up uh, magnificently yeah. uh, from a political perspective. I think we're all told you should talk about policy through personal stories. Ooh, and did and she ever? she just provided a masterclass on how to do that. So are we now going to have a national conversation about whether we should go back to busing? I, you know, we're, we're a little ways away from the debate. It appears that no one is planning on putting forward any big national proposal on this, although there's some talk that maybe Bernie references it a little bit. But I think that, uh, you know, they say policy is not made on the campaign trail. I don't think anyone's going to stop campaigning and, you know, try to research this and figure out Mm -hmm. what to do. Everyone's kind of making motions towards, of course, they'd like to promote more. Yeah, but uh, I don't see any, anything big on the horizon. Mark, your your background you you worked at the uh, Progressive Policy Institute back yep. in the day, right? So you've got your roots in the sort of New Dem side of things. Isn't it fair to say that you know part of the the New Dem approach and the Ed Reform approach was to say you know we we sort of tried uh, the focus on desegregation uh, back in the seventies and eighties. There certainly there were some got some real benefits, especially in the South, but uh, it ran aground on the shore of politics. You know, there, there was white flight to the suburbs and, and white families weren't particularly excited about busing and, and that fizzled out. Uh, and so then we had to figure out, okay, if we're, if we're going to have schools that are highly, uh, where there's a lot of racial isolation, where there's a lot of socioeconomic isolation, in other words, lots of high minority, high poverty schools, we've got to figure out how to make them better because we're going to have them for the foreseeable future. I mean, is that still where we're at? 
Uh, or well, do, do you see, I mean, it seems like there's energy on the left to have this desegregation conversation again. I guess I would say in my experience, so I got, you know, deep into local education advocacy starting in 2005. Although, as you said, for the five years before that, I was at the federal level. My sense was that we all took for granted all of the efforts that had come before. Yeah. And use that as a starting point to say, mm-hmm. what else do we need to do? Yeah. And I think the thrust of ed reform was what we need to do is focus more on the outcomes for individual kids. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when at CONCAN during that time period, we were looking at the magnet school program. Oftentimes it was hitting its integration targets, mm-hmm. but black kids weren't learning anymore inside magnet schools yeah. than the schools they came from. And we were saying we need to do better than that. Yeah. I think it's fair to say the tables have turned a bit where a lot of that focus on accountability, on transparency, on greater choices has been going on for a while now. And you see people coming back and saying, okay, if that's all you can do, maybe we need to revisit some of these yeah. older reforms. All right. So if busing is not going to be the centerpiece of the K-12 policy discussion uh this cycle what is uh crickets <laughs> I, well you've already <laughs> seen you know uh, uh, kamala harris led with a big push around teacher salaries yeah so that true. was her big signature yep. issue big big ticket item yeah i think you'll continue to see a focus on that yeah. and joe th- biden tripling title one again yes. lots of money so i think the democrats are are stepping up with more funding yeah it's it's like that 70s show. I mean, we're going back to more more, more money and busing. Okay. Yeah, it, and I think, you know, on the state level, the uh, it looks, the reformers are much more driving the agenda. So we're seeing a continued push around the things that mattered, whether that's standing up for accountability or continuing to expand quality choices. So I think the, the weird thing about this conversation is there's a huge disconnect between the debate we're seeing yeah. at the presidential level and what continues to unfold the state capital. All right, so let's talk about that. So that, that is what you do now in your day job is actually uh, help run campaigns at the state level for education reform. And as you say, you know, after ESSA with Trump, everything, you know, everything's gotten pushed to the state level. Yeah. It's of course, always the states have been in the lead on education now more than so than in decades, probably. And yeah, the the narrative that reformers are on our heels, that what, that may be true in a few blue states, but that certainly doesn't seem to be the case everywhere. Yeah, I think you're seeing two patterns. So you're seeing in red states like Georgia and Tennessee, Georgia had a huge session last year, uh, historic expansion of charter school funding, creation of uh, doubling of tax credit program. This year, you've seen Tennessee come back and not only doubling down on its accountability and Mm -hmm. protecting all of that work, but they came in and introduced a statewide authorizer. They created an ESA or an ESA plan mm-hmm. for the first time. So we're seeing big movement there. In the blue states, we're seeing new issues coming to the fore. So this year in Connecticut, for example, they passed a sweeping uh, set of reforms around expanding the teacher workforce around diversity. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I think you know Democrats are, are more eager to take up and run with. And then I think the sleeper issue is this question around innovation. So you're seeing a lot more states looking at computer science, mm-hmm. looking at um, ways to connect into the industry and and yeah. make the skills more you know valuable, more marketable. I don't know what color we should call Ohio right now, uh, our home state. It does seem to be more red than not these days. And uh, unfortunately, they, they had a bunch of great stuff in their budget bill. And then they have a continuing resolution that's going to continue for a few more weeks. So we don't know how this is going to come out. Yeah. They are behaving like the feds uh, <laughs> pushing the envelope. But look, there's money in that bill for 
high quality charter schools to significantly close the funding gap. There is a big expansion of the state's voucher program in there. Uh, there's some good stuff on graduation requirements, district yeah. turnaround. So again, we'll see what gets to the finish line in Ohio. But the look, the point that you are making, and I'm agreeing with here, is that it, it is <laughs> it is not as as uh, doomsday out there as you might think if you just read the national press accounts or you talk to some of the people at national foundations. Yeah, at absolutely. the state level, there's still important debates going on, and reformers are winning a lot of them. Yeah, and you know we carefully track all of the work that's happening on in our state campaigns. Last year, we had 17 major policy victories at the state level. Yeah, this year, halfway through the year, we have 14. So it would be easy to lose track of how much is happening. And I think each of those moves you a little closer to a different kind of education system. All right. Mark Porter McGee, again, CEO and founder of 50Can. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Adam, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, Fordham's Adam Tyner stepping in for Amber, as uh, much appreciated. So did you uh, get to see the debates last month? Have you joined in all the hoopla? You're talking about the presidential debates? That's right. Yeah, it's um, it's been a little less of a circus than I expected, I think. I mean, back when the Republicans had all those candidates back in the day, it was pretty entertaining. But um, this has been not quite so crazy. There's no Herman Cain character or anything, but it's uh, it's been it's been good. I mean, with 20 candidates, it's been less of a circus than I, I thought it would be. Well, come on, Marianne Williamson. She she uh, <laughs> she she belongs in a circus, some would say, uh, but uh, certainly spice things up. She's not she's not quoting Pokemon yet, though. So <laughs> well, maybe we'll get there. All right. Well, Adam, what you got for us this week? Well, this week we've got a study just published in AERA Open by Mesmin Destin at Northwestern University and his collaborators entitled Do student mindsets differ by socioeconomic status and explain disparities in academic achievement in the U.S.? We know that there are large achievement gaps in our country by socioeconomic status, or SES as we like to call it, and there's lots of historical and sociological reasons for that, as we all know. This paper offers a new spin on the grit and growth mindset research by examining the extent to which student mindsets may also vary by SES, which, since we know mindsets are correlated with student learning, could exacerbate inequities. Of course, the great psychologist Carol Dweck's idea of growth mindset is the belief that one's abilities are malleable and can be developed as opposed to the fixed mindset that ability is basically unchangeable, like when we hear somebody say, I'm just not good at math. And as I'm talking about the paper, just remember that fixed mindset and growth mindset are opposites. Mm -hmm. What's really unique about this paper is that it uses data from the recently released National Study of Learning Mindsets, which covers 16,000 ninth grade students across 76 U.S. public high schools and is nationally representative. That's a really powerful data source and goes far beyond what previous studies have been able to say about this topic. The researchers measure how fixed a student's mindset is based on the student's level of agreement with statements such as, your intelligence is something about you that you can't change very much. Statements like that. Then they look at student GPA in core academic classes to measure achievement, and SES is based on the student's mother's education. Now to the findings. Socioeconomic status and mindset are indeed correlated, with students from higher SES backgrounds having more of a growth mindset. 
Students whose mothers completed a college education, that's the main measure of SES, were 0.19 to 0.22 standard deviations lower in fixed mindset than the lower SES students, depending on the model, although that shrinks some when you start adding controls. But mindset and SES are correlated. But what about academic achievement? As has been found in numerous other studies, less of a fixed mindset is associated with higher academic achievement. And of course, unfortunately, SES is also correlated with achievement. But when you put them all together, the researchers find that SES and mindset are both independent predictors of achievement. Also, the correlations between mindset and, and achievement isn't much different for high SES students than for low SES students, whether you're from a more or less affluent background. The negative effect of a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset is about the same. But remember that mindset and SES are correlated, meaning it could be that that the more growth-oriented mindsets of the higher SES students, on average, are driving some of the socioeconomic gap in achievement. So, and this is the final finding, the researchers attempt to quantify how much of the gap would be closed if low SES students had the same average growth mindset as high SES students. And the answer is some, but not too much. It might be around 7% or a little less of the relationship between socioeconomic status and achievement that is driven by mindset differences. Oh, wow. Fascinating, Adam. All right. Well, a cu couple of things. First of all, what's your take on using GPA as the achievement measure? I mean, isn't that a problem since we know that, that grades are not consistent across different types of schools? You, you send, tend to see uh, lower achieving kids getting higher grades in high poverty schools, for example. What, what's your take on that? Well, they do a couple things to, to kind of adjust for that to make it a, a better measure. One thing is that they sometimes take, I mean, there's a few different models in there, but some of the models adjust for school averages so that you get the diff, like the student's difference uh, relative to the school. And that helps to, helps to adjust for some of that. Um, and yeah, I think that when you're specifically concerned about like what is the effect of growth mindset, I think the main issue is just having that variation in GPA and the fact that it's a little higher in, in some places, I mean, based on SES probably isn't confounding. Yeah. So I don't actually think it's such a problem right. in this case. That's fair. And then I, I can't help but wonder about the logic here feels a little bit circular, or at least the question would be, you know, which direction okay. does the relationship go? In other words, if I'm a kid who usually does pretty well in school and gets good grades, then maybe I have more belief in this notion that mindsets aren't fixed. I've seen myself get smarter over time or do better over time. If I'm a kid who has struggled and has had a lot of failure in school, right? you know, maybe not as much. Uh, anyways, that's I, a I great just, point. You know, so, so again, I mean, is, is it yes, mindset or is this somehow picking up on the kid's own experience with school? I think it's a great point, Mike. I, I don't think that they're able to disentangle that. And it is true that it could be that it goes the other way around. Maybe students who perform better have more growth mindsets because they perform better. But I don't think it's necessarily the case. I think it's very likely that, I mean, there's a lot of people who have these kind of views of, we know there's variation within both groups. And also, having, you know, there's a lot of people who just, they say, oh, he's a natural, or he's, you know, a natural at this or that, whether it's math or being an athlete or, or whatever. And that kind of talk, I think, is is present in among both, you know, uh, people who are high performers and people who are, 
are low performers. But you're right. I mean, it is definitely worth considering if maybe the the correlation runs the other way. But then if it does, what is that really telling you? I mean, if the if if being a high achiever means that you believe everybody can grow, um, I don't know. I don't really see it as as really confounding to their main question about about that correlation. Yeah. Well, I guess for me, Adam, it's it's this question of okay, what do we do about all this? And one line of thought is that we should focus on helping kids change their mindsets and have more of a growth mindset. That's fine, but it you know, the other approach could say, look, what we really need to do is help kids have more academic success. Uh, and that means figuring out uh, why they're not having as much success, which might mean that they're not getting the teaching that they need or the curriculum they need. Sure. Uh, you know, in other words, put it back on the school and say, well, look, you know, the problem here is that these ninth graders have gotten bad instruction for nine or 10 years. Uh, and that's why they have this negative attitude about growth. Uh, it's not so, imp- you know, we can't just slap a Band-Aid on that. Uh, by you know doing some training around growth mindset, what we got to do is uh, is a new approach that helps them be more successful, helps them learn to read and and write and do math, uh, and therefore feel better about themselves and their academic abilities and their ability to make progress. All right, but that all sounds like things to ponder uh, for another day. Well, I mean, I just let me say that I just don't think those are at all mutually exclusive. I mean, having yeah. getting students more, um, you know, more motivated and getting better teaching, those are in no way mutually exclusive. And the mindset interventions that have been tested are oftentimes very cheap, and they have yeah. been shown to have effects, which means that their ROI is off the charts of almost any educational intervention. So. I don't think we should be so quick to dismiss the mindset intervention. All right, well, that, that, that's fine. I, I just because because they're cheap uh, and somewhat easy. I guess I just worry that we're going to all get excited about only doing those and not going back to ask the question: Why are some of these ninth graders at a point where they still can't read and write and do math very well? They still don't have much content knowledge because our schools didn't teach them all along. You know that, no that doubt. doesn't that would be a huge take mistake. away from the fact that we got to do the much harder work of fixing that stuff. That's a heavy conversation for a hot summer day. Uh, Let's leave it there, Adam, because we are out of time. So until next week, I'm Adam Tyner. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gap Life Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org. 